Welcome all to the special event, uh, this talk by Terry Burke on Marshall G.S. Hodson. Uh, who was Marshall Hodson and should he have a claim on our attention today is the subtext of his talk and it derives from a long interest that Terry has had in Hodson and world history. The most recent manifestation of it, of course, is this book just come out, Islam and World History, The Ventures of Marshall Hodson, appropriately published by the University of Chicago Press. I should uh, also say that it's really uh, wonderful to have the Middle East Center host this event. Uh, so thank you very much, Eugene and Kaya, for making all the arrangements. In this gathering, of course, it seems a bit of anticlimax to introduce someone like uh, Terry Burke, because you all know him and his work very well. But I'll go through a kind of pro forma recitation, <laughs> if I might. So you know a very distinguished scholar of Morocco and North Africa initially increasingly turning to world history. Among his books are The Ethnographic State, France and Moroccan Islam, and The Genealogies of Orientalism, History, Theory, Politics. He collected essays of Marshall Hodson and of course this book. So we all very much look forward to hearing the lecture today, which will be followed up by, as, as always, a, a discussion. Welcome. Thank you so much. It is such a pleasure to be back here and to be in this very spot, as I was reminded by Derek Hopwood, where the two of us held forth on Jacques Berg probably 40 years ago. I can't begin to, I wish, we won't even say what the number is, but anyway, <laughs> that's a plausible theory. It's probably not the right one, but anyway, uh, welcome, welcome. Come on in. And uh, you'll get one of these handouts, which are at least you get something out of coming, right? So there is that. And the surprise is this year is the 50th anniversary of the death of Marshall Hodgson. He died at the age of 44 in 1968 while jogging. He was an intrepid but physical culturalist and a vegetarian way ahead of his time. So the fact that he died of jogging is, has a certain sort of ironic twist to it, I think. Anyway, as somebody who never liked jogging, I don't quite know what to do with that. <laughs> So you will find on this, on this sheet, uh, if you look at it, that there's been a lot of things going on, and some of them are relatively recent, and that, the recentness of them may be a surprise, and somebody may want to formulate a question about that as we go along. But there is an Arabic edition of the three volumes of Venture of Islam that they had one go at it in Tunisia in 2008, Alas, that was not an illustrious year to decide to publish the three volumes of Hodgson, and so that went away, but now it's in Saudi hands, and one hopes that that will be better. There is a Russian edition. There are two dueling Chinese ones, one from the People's Republic and the other one from Taiwan. There is a Japanese one, and there are several others that are under discussion. So what's interesting is there's no French one, right? There's no German one. and. Is there an English one? One wonders what language it is that Hodgson wrote. <laughs> well, I guess we have to, I just, it's just the way I do things, right? So I have to take a census, because then I can come away with something, too. And so how many of you have ever read anything in The, the Venture of Islam? That's eh, not so bad, right? That's not so bad. And who among you have read that, not because you were being forced to, but because you chose to? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. okay, that was dirty, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so um, I will file that information, and uh, who knows where it will next manifest itself. So there is now an Arabic edition of the Hodgson's Famous Hits, so I, I did the English one that Cambridge University Press did 50 years ago. 50 years? No, what is it? 
some other number. I'm very good at math, particularly not while talking. So there is, there is that. There's an Arabic one that Abdeslam Shaddadi, who is a Moroccan scholar, some of you may know him as the man to go to on uh, Ibn Khaldun. And he has a uh, side interest in Marshall Hutchin and indeed in world history and putting Islam into world history. And I guess that I'm sort of sliding in sideways into what I wanted to say, and I do have a text here, and this is going to be a repeat performance of what happened on Monday, where I have the text, but the purpose of the text is to comfort me, not you. And so, what is it about Hodgson, I suppose, is the, is the question. And, and you know, the, I have experimented with various beginning sentences of this talk. I've given this talk only really once before, in some other version, back in 2012, when there was the conference that put Faisal and me together, because we were both at this conference, that was in Paris at the Université Paris 7, I think it is, now Paris Diderot. And the person who was organizing this conference is a very unlikely person to be doing it. Therefore, all the more reason that it would succeed, because it's a man named Robert Mankin. And Robert Mankin is an Anglicist, was an Anglicist. Unfortunately, he didn't survive to see the printed book. And he and I put together the, uh, the edition, and it's quite remarkable. So there's only one paper in it by a Norte Americano, and uh, that's by somebody who is a Sinologist, who finds that things that Hodgson had to say about steppe empires were still cogent and useful for people working on Mongols and the various other steppe empires on the frontiers of China. It's a woman named Pamela Crosley, and it's quite an interesting paper, and I certainly commend it to you if you are so happy as to have this book fall into your hands. The other thing to say is that there are at least two essays in this book based on detailed foraging into the personal archive of Hodgson, or the professional archive, I guess you could say. I'm not sure, you know, this is in some ways part of the cautionary tale of who was Marshall Hodgson. Was there a person there, as opposed to somebody who was lit like a, an incandescent candle and just sort of did everything in 44 years? And the answer to that question, is, I think, is a resounding yes, but it takes you a little while to get there because there's so many other things that he was involved in, and that's part of the fascination. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. So anyway, so Marshall Hodgson is somebody who is known. He's known for writing a, uh, a three-volume textbook, because that's what the venture of Islam is. And at the, at the, uh, the Paris conference, there were some scholars sort of in the, their middle years, middle ranks, who were there who were handling Hodgson for the first time and who were really quite disappointed. And they said, what kind of scholarship is this? The field has completely gone by all of this. Look at the footnotes in this, they're ridiculous, they're, these are not proper footnotes, and uh, we're having a merry time of rubbishing um, Hodgson and all he works and all he stands for. Until I pointed out that it was a kind of book that doesn't exist in France, it's actually a monument scolaire, right? We're not talking about something that is written for fellow erudite scholars, we're talking for something that's written for University of Chicago freshmen, and freshmen is what it's written for. Does it miss the mark? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh my goodness, does it ever, right? Uh, if you haven't fallen into the clutches of Hodgson, um, I recommend him to you, particularly if you're a fan of periodic sentences. Right? So long Victorian periodic sentences with many semicolons, this is your kind of book. Believe it or not, it has lots of wit. Well, lots may be overselling it, but it has some. And it is genuinely illuminating on such an array of topics as you could not begin to imagine. So the personal archive of Hodgson plunges us into trying to understand who this phenomenon was. And there hasn't been another person like him, and I don't care where we go to think about it. So he begins life in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Now, if anybody knows anything about Colorado Springs, they know that that's where the American Air Force Academy is located. 
SAC bases are nearby, you know, missile bases are nearby. Colorado Springs would be not a very good place that you would want to grow up in during the Cold War. However, Hodgson predates the Cold War. So he was turning 17 uh, in high school, some of his buddies, and he's a Quaker. He's a certain kind of American Quaker, and he's the kind of American Quaker that very easily was uh, given to uh, sizing things up and making moral judgments about them. And the one thing he was quite sure of is that he was an anti-racist. And in you know 1944, to be pulling that off is pretty amazing, and getting a bunch of his high school buddies in what was probably a, a largish farm town, Colorado Springs, I don't think, and maybe it had some mining support stuff that, went, that was based there too, but it certainly was not anything to do with the American military. And he was sufficiently engaged in that, that when the U.S. entered the war with Japan, it was particularly the, the racism that lay behind the American entry into, into World War II with Japan that he just could not tolerate. So it's not an East Coast looking towards Europe view, it's a Central Plains looking towards the Pacific kind of a view, and that's already quite interesting. For his pains, he is interned, probably one of the younger members, as a conscientious objector during World War II, with other, some of the quite famous American intellectuals ended up there. And he wrote at least the title and the sort of the outlines of a book, this at the age of 18, that he planned on writing. And his personal archive is filled with such things. This is the book I want to write. Boom, 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 right? And then sometimes it, they bounce around and some of them come back under different names. But you can sort of actually follow that if you want. So the title of this particular book was, fans of Saeed, please note, The Orient Does Not Exist. So right away, we have to think that this is somebody who does not mind being, you know, a real pain in the butt to the high and the mighty to make his point and who, who has a way of... So I, this is untutored. I don't know where this is coming from. I, I really don't. Somebody told me once that he had been, for a period, maybe the family fortunes were low. It's not unclear just what, what period in his life this happened. He was living in a boarding house in St. Louis where the person who ran the boarding house, probably not the owner, was a South Asian of Gandhian persuasion. And he had a lot to do with turning Marshall into a vegetarian and very likely also into a pacifist although that was multiply determined because he was a Quaker, and for him, that was the essential. So with this baggage, going through the University of um, Camp Elkton in, in Oregon, he then ends up at the University of Chicago as an undergraduate. And somehow, this is the part I'm just going, I don't get this. He acquires sufficient Arabic, and I think Persian, to be able to put together his dissertation which is the dissertation that some people, at least in this room, know, and it was quite a breakthrough at the time, on the order of the assassins, right? So the Itnashri, the Shiite mystical tariqa, and it's violent connections, we might say. It's a revolutionary violence. Mystical terrorism is the better term. So I'm going to give you a... I will get back to out of the weeds, but not for very long because I love the weeds. So on my campus, there was an illustrious figure whose name was Norman O. Brown. Does anybody remember who Norman O. Brown was? A few, not many. But he was one of the three, the big three in the period of the Vietnam War that if, you know, the big sort of radical theorists that you had to, had to pay attention to, the author of a book called Love's Body, Life Against Death. Those are the two main books that he wrote. He was a Canadian. And he was a colleague of mine. And in, uh, at the time of the Persian Revolution, the Iranian Revolution of 78-79, he decided that he uh, had spent all of his life not addressing Islam and that this needed to be handled. And so in characteristic fashion, he went to the library 
and he got every single book out that was, had anything to do with Hodgson or Islam in any manifestation that was going to help him do it. And then he did a series of four talks plus a couple of leftover things that became talks later, which were then, he then died young also, there's a lesson here. There is a book from those lectures that, that would be interesting to look at, and it's quite sui generis, he's not an Islamicist in any respect. And I spent some hours talking with him about who was Hodgson and so on. And the mystical terrorism thing is what came from him, right? Because this is, this is exactly who Norman O. Brown was. That, that was the kind of mind that he had. And these are minds, his mind and Hodgson's mind, are, are ones that go into the sort of late 19th century, early 20th century, Weltgeschichte and into theological speculations thereupon. So Niebuhr and I don't know, my branches froze, but all of the all of the standard people that you would plug in at that time were household words, and these were the people that they were looking at. So Hodgson then is somebody who comes of age intellectually right in the middle of and at the end of World War II, and he is of a mind to try and generate something that will serve, in some ways, the cause of humanity, we might say it that way. It sounds a little hokey, but we could say it that way. And that meant that he and others, right, if you, I mean, actually this is a Norman Brown being another, but somewhat eccentric person out of the same kind of a lineage. The thought was that, that there needs to be a way for humans, that is to say, humans, well, let's get serious here, a few intellectuals, to begin thinking about how we can have a common world history that will not be the history of civilization writ large, that will not be the history of imperialism writ large or imper individual imperialisms, but will rather be a way of approaching the history of humanity in which everybody can participate. And so Michael Geyer is one of the people who wrote a chapter there and, and, and very much gets into this and into the way in which it's the moral conscience of Hodgson that is pushing him, pushing him along into writing the venture. So the venture is very uncharacteristically not Orientalist in at least one respect, which is that it is overtly political. Its politics are not party and they're not ideology, so it's a little bit hard necessarily to imagine what they were, but they were nonetheless very deeply felt and quite original, and he really wanted people to come to some new understandings that would take them away from the older, more cliched, civilizationist kinds of world histories and into some others. Why does he get involved in world history? So I'm going to jump. And this is where there are two pieces in this book, one by Katja Neumann, who is a German historian, a world historian at Leipzig University. <coughs> Some of you may remember that Leipzig used to be called Karl Marx University. Some of you may, may remember that Karl Marx is a world historian. And therefore, anything that was written in the vein of Weltgeschichte was happy to be there all during the Cold War. It would not be uprooted because it's part of the soil out of which Marx and interestingly, some at least of the faculty at this university continue to be very interested in world history and very interested in the sort of how do, you, how do we come up with a world history that all can, be, can see themselves in and can understand themselves as parts of world historical processes. And a key move that Neumann makes in her paper in this book, I mean, it, it's a piece of what Hodgson was up to that I completely missed. And I think I can be justified in having missed it, but have any of you looked at the UNESCO History of Humankind? Didn't think so, right? I, 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 this is just the way I think about things, but if you're in a turning point era, I just find it fascinating as an historian to go and find some books that were very much the expression of the time, even though they subsequently get left behind, as we just established, right? And so the UNESCO History of, of Humankind goes all the way up to the present, and in, I think, six volumes. 
And a chunk of it was based in Europe, and some of the volumes had the general editor was based in Chicago, actually. Another Chicago colleague of Hodgson's, who was a French historian and had nothing to do with UNESCO or anything else until he sort of raised his hand at the wrong time and found himself the editor of, of this enterprise. Then what they're trying to do, and this is again just after you know, the end of the war, suddenly the knowledge of the death camps is everywhere, the atomic bomb has been dropped, independence movements in the third world are very active, and it's quite clear that if the UNESCO history is going to mean anything. It has to find space for South Asian, for Latin American, for African, for Chinese, etc., for, for all of the world and its intellectuals, which brings it down to, you know, we could fit them all in this room probably. But in aspirational terms, of course, it's way more than just a few people, and that the facetious remark is, uh, is not in that sense merited. So a lot of what, they are, what they're trying to do with this um, American historian of France as the, as the referee is to find a common language. The chapters have already been farmed, I think, by the time Hodgson came on board. There's a French historian brought in Hodgson because he was just desperate. He didn't know what to do. He was just overwhelmed by the, the stakes are so high. We don't inter international incidents you know, at this stage of things. We got to just keep this thing on the, on the road. Who cares if anybody reads it? We just want to get it out, right? And of course, the ones involved had another idea, and they did want something to come out of it. But in the nature of the thing, just at that time, it wasn't likely to happen. There was no common language, and the tensions of the post-war world were immediately there. And those tensions were multiple and complex, and, and included third world nationalisms, included the struggle between the US and the Soviet Union, and they included various rearguard actions by failing European colonial powers to try and find some way of salvaging a bit of respect for what they had done. And so it was not an easy task. So what Hodgson did, and I think, I'm not sure that he even gets the credit, I think it just sort of happened, is, so the book is written, the individual chapters are written, they're written by the person that was assigned to write them, so all of that looks perfectly straightforward. And then there are the footnotes, and the footnotes threaten to take up most of the page, often. And what are the footnotes? This is what, and Hodgson did at least have the wit to understand that this should not only be thought about, it should actually be implemented. Because anything that is written in the same, there's like, 50 or 100 people out there that are going to get the draft. And then they're going to write in, and they're going to say, on this point, I beg to differ, right? And they would go on and on, right? And, and then, you know, a little bit further along, they would say, and on that point, where did you get that from? This is, we've always thought, right? Et cetera. So the footnotes are a sort of record of incomprehensions and, uh, you know, semi-stuffed anger, but also the groping in the direction of some way of finding a way to shake hands. And so what you have to read is the, is the footnotes. And the footnotes are sort of the down payment on the potential of the project, right? That there should be a volume that actually does successfully put together a way of approaching world history and a way of integrating others in it so that nobody feels condescended to or, or dissed, but that everybody can find ways of seeing themselves in this larger, reflect, somewhat shattered, reflecting mirror. So, Katja Neumann's paper is, is one that puts the UNESCO paper into it and, and establishes, and this is the part, I, I, so I was sort of prepared for the UNESCO volume as being more than I had originally um, imagined. But then what I didn't know is that this is the way in which Hodgson gets exposed systematically to Marxist thought. Because the Soviets, they're in the volume, right? And they're somehow not in the volume also. And they're absent presences, but they're also present absences. And there are 
conferences that are held in Finland and other places where everybody shows up, all the teams are there. And so they have to deal with one another straight up. And the people that are involved are not, are not trivial historians from their national histories, but these are very leading figures. Claude Guyandis would be a name that everybody would recognize here, as a, for instance. But I think Brodell was involved. I'm trying to think of who the British... Jeffrey Barraclough. It's just sort of people who are, you would not think that they would have, if you quarry away in their past, it's probably buried in the bottom of their CV somewhere. It's, it wouldn't be something that anybody would be proud of. I think everybody regards it as sort of a failure, albeit maybe a heroic failure. That's one thing I just wanted to lay out there. And there are several of the papers that push in that direction and try and historicize Hodgson. And the, I guess the takeaway from that for me is that this is a sign that something serious was going on. And then it's just me, and this is the way I think about things at this point in my life. But looking at, alas, the world around us, I am moved to think that maybe we, we should begin moving things away so that we can start building another effort to devise a history of humankind in which all humans are involved that want to be, can be, right? Or at least all intellectuals, which reduces it to the people in this room. So what do you say? Should we do that? It's a career killer, but you'll be a hero. <laughs> and, and so in that spirit, the thing about Hodgson is, how do we get the three volumes? We get the three volumes because he's at the University of Chicago, and this is a place that is in the midst of trying to reinvent undergraduate education in the aftermath of World War II. And so one form that this takes is the invention of the civilization course. And some of you may know a little bit enough to say, but it's not only going on in Chicago, and I'll say absolutely not. No. I mean, Columbia University is the other major place that it goes on. Those of you that know about the University of Chicago know there is the college, which is the undergraduates, and then there's the university, which is everybody else, the real people, right? Not, not the people who just teach undergraduates, right? That would be some kind of caricature, I'm sure. It would please the people that thought of themselves as being among the elite to, to characterize their colleagues in that fashion, for sure. In any event, what Hodgson does is he says, oh, I think we should have something on Islam, because they had China and, West, and Western Civ, I think is what they had at, at, at the beginning. And he says, this is a two-legged stool, it's not going to stand, we need at least one more leg, right? And so I'll just do Venture of Islam. <laughs> and many years later, he did, right? And the, the book that we had have in our hands, if we had the thought to want to do that, is a book that, that was published after his death. So he dies in 68, 74, <coughs> the actual book comes out, and it's thanks to Reuben Smith, who was a junior colleague uh, and co-teacher of that course with Hodgson, that we actually have the book. And he then becomes a convenient whipping boy for all of the things that went wrong. Right. He's the modernizationist. Right. He's the one that believes in the Cold War, etc. So I'm not sure that's true, and I'm not sure there's any way of establishing that, and I think that the pervasive influence of the Cold War being what it was, um, there was lots to go around. And if Hodgson was exempt, which mostly I think he seems to have been, which is already quite remarkable, is, you know, there's still, there's still lots more that, that would seep into every pore. So it, in the way in which thinking of ourselves in this room as, as intellectuals and as, at the same time, people in the world and, and having in every pore being deluged with stuff, and there's now even more with all the social media. So how do you try and preserve some space in which you can actually think without it already being compromised before um, it, the thought even gets out of your brain. So what Hodgson was trying to do was sort of that, and that's what makes him so fascinating, to me anyway. All right, so there's one other paper I wanted to talk about. It's in the book, and then I'll say a little bit about venture 
I don't know if I'll even do that. Uh, uh, maybe we'll just, then we'll just talk. I think that's what I want to do. So there's, a, there's another paper there, and the thing about Hodgson is, if you've never heard the name and you're here and you're going, what is this guy going to talk about? I mean, jeepers, you know, civilization, hello, isn't this quaint, right? Sorry, that's not the game. Because what Hodgson is about is to, is to try and find a way of developing a new master narrative. And the new master narrative is going to be one that is based on a rethinking, not just at the cultural level. See, this is the place where he parts company with the Orientalist tradition. Uh, maybe we can put that in, in quotation marks because there's maybe people that don't want to be found under that label. That's okay, I'm there for them. But those that want to be there, that's good too, right? But it's just that a culturalist approach to the history of humanity or of any given subset of humanity is an approach that's missing elements from some other points of view, right? And so what Hodgson did and what, what made, him, made him win my heart, I suppose, is that he is a down-to-the-roots Weberian in a way that you hardly ever encounter. Even Weber himself would be impressed, I think. So what do I mean by that? He had a lot of these, these neologisms, that he, military patronage state, you know, Step Frontiers is not terribly heavily packed, but military patronage state is definitely um, packed. And it's, it's particularly devised to try and talk about the first Turkish groups that are admitted into the Ottoman Empire under the Abbasids and are deployed, and the whole new agricultural system has to happen, and a whole new way in which Sunnism has to be reinvented. And this is, these are all thoughts that were new to the field and that were coming from Hodgson at the time. Right? So you can say, well, we've gone by that. I mean, it was 40 years ago, for heaven's sake. And that's not an adequate answer, I think, because what he did is he, he's one about constructing larger sort of conceptual architecture. I guess that's the, the way I want to sell it. And it's not casual, right? It's deeply thought through so that it's somewhat like matryoshka dolls, right? There's inside one is another doll, and you open that one, and there's still other components to it. Military patronage state would be one that's like that. I'm not prepared to go further with that right now, but certainly one could do that. Oh, well, here's another one. Some of this doesn't belong in a textbook, right? In some ways, it's undercooked, you could even say. But there's a, there's a chapter in there on Islamdom and Christendom as frameworks for the organization of human activity. That's not quite the title, but it's something like that. And then you start, I mean, I actually, for some of my undergraduates at one point when I used to teach the venture of Islam, I actually went so far as to generate a handout that Christendom, Islamdom, right? Islamdom, right? Because it's about the domain of. It's not about Christianity and Islam, right? Which would be a more flat-footed, somewhat naive way of coming at it. Anyway, so Hodgson goes through all of this. Everything from art, history, music, everything is... He finds Weberian sort of archetypes that he can then organize, and it's quite revealing and fascinating, just what he comes up with. Well, he does the same thing with gender, and this is the chapter by Jocelyn Dachria. I think the, probably the most brilliant thing by a brilliant scholar whose work I have been following closely, and it is truly amazing, and it's, it's Hodgson on sexuality and gender, and it's way ahead of the field. I'm sorry, I have to say it that way. And that was written in the 1950s, because most of Venture was written in the 1950s. He dies in, in 68, but a lot of it, because given just the scale of it, right, is, is already written long before um, it ever sees the light of day. So the more recent ones are the ones that are more likely to be still, still being worked on in the workshop. He hadn't quite 
sorted out what he was going to do, but the earlier ones, and so the, the gender and sexuality one is just, it's truly extraordinary, and can I give you a flavor? Part of it has to do with, this is in some ways kind of new, certainly new to the way feminism started out, but it's very much about power, and it's also about the nature of marriage. And so it's the contrast between, this is one of these Weberian contrasts that he does, between the single wife model, right, with many concubines, and the plural wife model, possibly also concubines, and then what are the political dynamics inside, right, which is the place nobody goes, and certainly no non-feminist has gone in quite a while, and nobody, when, when Hodgson went there, uh, very few people had had that thought, and just to try and follow it up, where does homosexuality fit into this? So he's all the questions you'd want to go to, he's there, and he's thought through them in very deep ways. So I would definitely recommend that. There's lots to be gained by going back to Hodgson again and again, I guess is the main thing I'm trying to sell here. So I could say more about other chapters, I think I'm not going to do that. So I wanted to talk about Hodgson then and Hodgson now, which is a sort of funny way to think. When he starts doing this in the early 50s, what is the world like? What's the sort of intellectual matrices that he's drawing on when he begins to think through what is um, the venture of Islam? And then what form does that take? And so I've talked a little bit about how the kinds of Weltgeschichte and other kinds of European philosophically inflected, deeper, probably civilizationally coded histories are certainly one place that he comes from, and those mixed up with moral and or religious thought. European intellectuals had not yet gotten to a point where many of them anyway, the non-French ones we could say, um, where secularism was hale and hearty and could just stand on its own two feet and we didn't have to continually try and see how God had actually ordained what, what it is that we were going to tell people he did, that was going on. So that's part of, of what Hodgson does, but the, the Weberian bits also, and then it's just the world historical way of thinking. So let me sell that for a little bit. And so one of the things that he does, for example, and this is very, very characteristic and very interesting as a kind of a move on a board, right, intellectually. Most books, before and since in a way, that are histories of Islam, Islamic society, and so on, that start with Islamic origins and then carry us forward, you know, down the road a ways, if not all the way to the Promised Land. Most of those start with a chapter that's called Arabia Before Muhammad. Wrong, totally wrong, right? What's the first chapter in Venture? Islam and the world. What's the difference? What has he just done? Instead of saying that Arabia is this little backward place, they had their own stupid little things that they do, they had a free ball, they had a moment when the other, the big empires weren't watching, and they put together this salad of stuff that doesn't make any sense that we were all kicking around and sorry didn't die ages ago. So there it is, right? Well, no, this is this whole inward looking, it, there's no outside reference, there's no connection to the world at large. What Hodgson does is to say, no, 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 we have to think about the world. And this is before, I don't think Father Lamance, Chris will tell us, had a notion that Ethiopia would be in play in the in the origin story. I'm just trying to think of who were the who were the European Orientalists who were writing about Islamic origins in the interwar period. Give me a couple. Henri Lamance is one one big one. Who else? Well, all right. So I mean, in some ways, what we're doing is a sort of before the avalanche, when post World War II, suddenly there are lots of people who think it's an important thing for us to do to really put together a large sort of study of the history of Islam. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is I think Hodgson probably is one of very few, if not the only one, certainly the only one to say at the freshman, that to understand Islam is to understand its relationships not just 
to Persia and the Byzantine Empire, but also to Abyssinia and to South Asia, and to Africa, in other words. And that was a sort of a no-go zone. And already that's there, right? And South Arabia is definitely part of the way he frames it up. Even though he's making haste in the actual substance, intellectual substance of what he does there. So it's pretty shamelessly you know, Montgomery Watt, right, if you actually read what he's doing. And maybe that's forgivable. Uh, he did have three whole volumes he had to get through, and that was a convenient way of shaping it up. And it seemed like it was fresh enough so that it, would, it was something he could stand up. But then he goes on, and he, he divides Islamic history into six major 250-year periods, which was certainly at the time, and for a good while thereafter, was to give a value to what he called the middle periods, not the middle ages, but to the middle periods of Islamic history. And that's a point of saying, no, this is not Christian civilization. We are not going there. We're not going to talk about medieval Christianity. Islam is way in advance of medieval Christianity in so many ways, and it has its own integrity and its own importance. And we have to look at that. So the middle periods, and then to do this other thing that he does, he divides the big middle period into two sub-periods, right? And so one is the post-945 to Mongol end of Abbasid's era, and the other is Abbasid's until rise of Ottomans and Safavids, and Mughals, actually. And that was breathtaking, right? And to do that and to argue that the two middle periods that seem like they're not together are actually together in many ways, and then to go on and try and demonstrate it on the basis of, of a non-existent literature, from a lot of which he generates himself, some of which is certainly made up of heroic inspirations that subsequent literature has, for the most part, borne out, even though individu on individual points, certainly he, you know, the, there are people who say, no, 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 wrong again, Marshall, you're not paying attention. But that's easy to say when the man's been dead for 50 years. So it's the conceptual enterprise. And then the final thing is the, that he does, and this is where Abdeslam Shaddadi is, is so important, is to say, you almost can't do a history of Islam without doing world history at the same time. And unless you take the world history part seriously, you can't really adequately get the Islamic part out of the weeds and into a space where it can be understood in its own right. And so that's the other thing that goes on. So with that, I'm going to leave you, and we can have a merry time. So thank you for your interest. <laughs>